Hey legends, friend of the show, Guy Miley Corain here. Today's main interview segment with Steve Bowen was recorded prior to the current COVID-19 crisis and also prior to the recent Australian bushfires and therefore it doesn't feature any discussion of either topic. Josh and producer Mel hope that you're holding up and keeping in good spirits through these very stressful and uncertain times. Please enjoy something lighter and for the next hour or so, be smart and be safe. Josh. You've got me here again, punchingsideways.com, and Steve Bowen's back on. Why is he back on? He's He's been on. I'm the only one who's allowed to come back on twice. True. And Dan Caulfield. Yeah, well, he just seems to get a mention even when he's not. Exactly. Doesn't even need one like Hashtag right now. Dan Caulfield. <laughs> so, Mel, I think the reason that he's coming back on, Steve and I only got through probably 20 to 25% of what we were going to get through. Yeah, right. Because we went on a couple of very long tangents. <laughs> and we all love a tangent, yeah. don't we? And that's one of the most popular episodes of the show so far. Yeah. And even before that first episode came out, Steve said, oh, well, we probably need to do another one because mm. we didn't get through much. He chased you. I wouldn't say that, but he oh. did He did say he gave me a very fine, like, exacting percentage of that's literally only 25%. And I'm like, right, so we've got a fair bit to go because I think we got through to about 1998. Yeah, right, and you're a numbers man. Do you know what that means? It's like sitting through an Elton John concert, the last one, where yeah. I was sitting through it for hours and I was like, oh, God, we're only up to 98. I've still got <laughs> another two hours to sit still. And not, and not much as good. <laughs> no, no, no. It was, all, it was all really good. That was what was yeah. um, frustrating that I needed to stay there. Same with, with Steve Bowen stuff. I needed to stay there, but I was like, oh, we're only up to 98. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully... You know, Steve's 98 to 2020 is a slightly more exciting than Elton John's because <laughs> not, not a lot comes to mind with Elton. Elton was ama- uh, Okay. One of the great performers, I'll give We you should listen to this podcast because it's absolutely amazing, but also so was Elton John in performance. He just switched it on for a man his age. Go for him. Yeah. But let's listen to Stevie Bowen. Yeah. If you want to support the show, buymeacoffee.com slash Joshua C. Liston, punchingsideways.com. This is probably most of what Steve wanted to get through that we didn't. So this uh-huh. conversation, I let him guide where we went a little bit more and the pacing and everything. Really? And kind of tried to not go down too many tangents because, mm-hmm. once again, Steve being one of the busiest people in that I've ever yeah. met, he was on a pretty tight time crunch. But we got everything in there and we also did a quick Q&A from people on Facebook, which is in this one. Yeah, cool. First time. And... It went really well and we got some instant responses and people asking me interesting questions like, what's the deal with your hair? Which has a great answer, an unexpected oh. answer. So that's coming up. in this. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> so support us, buy Mel a coffee. Yeah, buy me a coffee, please. She didn't say the F word then. I'm not sure whether yeah. that's convincing. No, no. <laughs> buy me an effing coffee because Josh makes a terrible coffee I and I need, <laughs> I need a real people one. People are going to think that, hey, this is an incredibly creepy room and, man, that coffee sucks. <laughs> it does suck. It doesn't even get offered anymore. Yeah, no. it is. I'm sorry. Maybe <laughs> if you were running on time, it would. Yeah, okay. Righto. Let's go with Steve Bowen and you and I will jump back in at the end and get a little bit more yeah. petty. Okay. Steve Bowen, welcome back to the studio, mate. Thanks very much. Um, Great to be back. Yeah, so we're here for part two. Last time we spoke, I think we worked out it was about 25% of what we thought we'd get through. Yeah, so this is part two of, and we won't say of how many, so we can just, you know. Yeah, we we don't want to lock lock that down at this (laughs) point. Because hopefully there's a bit more to go. (laughs) So just to catch everyone up, if this is the first time you've heard the show, Steve and I got to the point where you were working on the radio, you'd just moved out of radio, to focus on Bowen's entertainment full-time, which is what most people probably know you best for anyway. I was glad that you picked me up on where we were. That's good. Yeah. No worries. So that I can't remember in what year we were in, but you'd moved out of radio and you at that point, and we'll start with this, you were scaling up and you had 20 people working for you, and I'm not sure when that happened. But Correct. So let's let's just start with that, 20 people to yeah. go from just doing nights yourself and having a couple of guys yeah. to go on to 20. What was the plan there, the goal? I mean, that trans- 
transitioned over a number of years. But uh, so whilst I was on radio is when I actually built up that um, that amount of uh, of team. So radio was in the in the mid uh, or, or early to to late nineties, and in that time is where I uh, started to uh, build the team. Because whilst I was at radio, uh, I needed other people to to fulfil some of the work. So I had. Uh, I had a guy by the name of Glenn Miller, or we called him Gadget, and he was my manager. And I had a secretary as well too, and Kelly, Kelly Davis, who now looks after the Cinema Centre, looks after all their promotions and, and manages that down there. So they were like full-time staff that I had. And uh, then, you know, pretty much we had, yeah, we had 20 guys and we would have 17 jobs um, on one night. Wow. Regularly. So, so we would have mostly Saturday oriented stuff. Or? We had around five to six different regular spots. So we had things like you know back then uh, the Termo when it was not burnt down. Yes. Uh, we had you know, Edwards Tavern. We had yeah you know, Lavi Sports Club early on in those days there too. Uh, we did the Globe or Z Bar. So we had a number of different regular spots that we put DJs into either midweek or weekends, but definitely on a Saturday was the biggest night, of course, and uh, we had 12 mobiles that we ran out and about five other other regular spots on the night. So 17 guys out working and three as a you know backup or a, a, yeah. know, overshoot or whatever or, or weren't available. So two-part question. What sort of geographical area was that over at that point and how were you managing the quality of of the deliverable on all of those different things because obviously it's a product that's squashed into a small time frame and people expect a whole lot out of each individual person you were sending out because it's for a function or a special event or whatever. How are you keeping tabs on that? Yeah, they sure do. And that's that's a great question. It was around our region most most mostly. I mean, I did venture out a little bit further. I'd do functions in Melbourne or Sydney or or, you know, or Adelaide. You, you personally. Personally, yep. yeah. I didn't send my team out that far, but, uh, but you know, I charged a, a, a different dollar amount for me than I did for my team because I knew, I realised early on what happened was when I first started the business, you know, in the, um, in the early 90s, late, you know, late 80s, you know, I, I, you know, took jobs on and I sent one of my team out to it and then they said, oh, we didn't get you. I said, well, no, you know, <laughs> well, no, no, because it was, you know, it was, three of, you know, there's three jobs and, and I realised and some people were a little bit annoyed by that, that they thought they were booking me and all the time I never thought I was going to the job, I was giving them one of my other guys. So I learned early that I had to charge a premium for me so it was me um, so they knew what they were getting and that's what we do now. I actually charge by for the DJs now and they're all at a different rate and so we've got three now and uh, they're all at a different rate because they're at a different experience level. And they deliver different things as well too, based on you know extra things like emceeing and how experienced they are at that, how big the music collection is as well too, and how many years they've been going. Plus, whether they do a few photos to add into the entertainment experience as well. So that's how I rate team now in terms of that and how we, you know, it's pretty much a supply and demand type situation. But your second question, so we would pretty much do this region right through from. You know, regularly right up to Koryong to, to, you know, Yarrawonga, Mawala, Token Wall, to Wang, Benella, and, and then through into, you know, to Wagga. So that was pretty much the region at that time. Yeah, well, so it's a pretty big, pretty big region. It's, it's a big area. You travel a lot of Ks. And, and also, it was always difficult to, to, to uh, uh, assign someone to a particular job because it's got different styles of personalities and different styles of DJs because everyone thinks that all DJs are the same. And that's the, the real key is that, you know, all DJs are totally different. It's just like a band. You know, a band plays a certain particular song um, or a, a genre or, you know, do certain things that work really well for their style of singer or their style of, of musicians. Similar with a, with a DJ, you can have uh, a country DJ, you can have an R&B DJ, you can have a techno or a dance DJ. DJ, uh, a pop DJ, or you know, just a, you know, a general party DJ as well too. So it's all very different, and it was based on what their music collections held. Because back then too, you know, there was no Spotify, there was no you know Apple iTunes and all that sort of nature. So what you had in your collection was also you know what was required until we were able to start getting some um, uh, industry music. Uh, that were available so I could make sure I could supply the guys with a regular, you know, set so we could actually have a similar set that each one had a particular style of music. Because when you went to a function, if you didn't have the song, you couldn't get it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's no, like, there's no, oh, look, I'll just download this or here, play this from my phone. 
Yeah. Right. So, so to manage the quality was always challenging. It was always tough. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we did a lot of training. We did a training session every week. So we had a training meeting every week. We had a, um, we would uh, get people in and I would get people in from outside the industry as well as within the industry. I got, got some contacts from Sydney and so forth. So we, I would get people in to train us and to do some training. We would do also internal training ourselves. Um, we would make them, I'll give you an example. So um, we would get them to do, back then Channel 10 used to have the X-Files on. And uh, we used to, uh, we got employed by Channel 10, or my company did at the time, to uh, advertise that the X-Files were on. And they want us to walk down Dean Street with a sandwich board on saying the aliens are coming on the front. And then on the back it said, watch Channel 10 tonight for X-Files. Right. But, you know, people, and, and to, for someone to have a sandwich board in Albury-Wodonga is pretty unusual. You know, you might see them out the front of the jewellery shops in Melbourne. Uh, but so we would walk down the street and that was part of my training for the guys. Plus we would pay them for it at the same time too. So they would walk down and all they had to do was say hi to people and walk down the street in a sandwich board because I wanted them to get used to um, standing out from a crowd and getting used to being looked at and getting used to being uh, feeling, you know, uncomfortable in that area so they could get more comfortable with it. And, uh, you know, so we would do that. I would get them to do little training sessions where they'd have to walk down the street with their jocks on the outside of their pants. <laughs> so they just got used to doing unusual things and different things. And having a lot of eyeballs on you. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, we would do sessions on you know, learning how to do the nut bush, learning how to do the time warp, learning how to do the macarena. So we would do sessions on that, making sure all the DJs knew the dancers so they could lead them. Because if you are waiting for the party to happen, then you're really missing the boat. You've got to be able to create it and create the atmosphere. Yeah, right. As the next door neighbour decides to knock down his house, that's what happens in these kinds of situations. So first question with the X-Files thing, would it not have been better to have, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the TV show, but to have someone walking down the street in a massive cigarette, the smoking Uh, man? Yeah, no, not as familiar with the show. It could have been, but just doing that initially, you know, wearing a sandwich board and walking down the street saying hello to everybody was a was a unique enough different thing to start people off with. So it was just sort of part of the training session. Yeah, right. Yeah, so we use that. Yeah, and, and also I'd get them to spruik. I would also get them to spruik out the front of shops. So we would spruik out the front of a sports store or a jewellery store or a, or a dress shop or something of that nature so that they got used to just speaking without music as their as their backdrop. So Because generally as a DJ, you, you always sort of hide behind your console and you hide behind your music and you might say a couple of things and you make a few announcements. So, you know, you've got to work on your, your, your vocal technique and your personality. So I guess one thing that would occur to or it might not occur to a lot of people, is that when people saw you, either yourself or later on your crew doing things like spruiking at shops and walking down the street, I'm assuming a certain amount of people would have thought, ah, oh, well, then obviously that's where the real money is. It's not from the DJing, it's from all this other stuff. But for you, it was actually on-the-job training that all fed back. Everything was feeding back Absolutely. to those few hours a day that these guys were performing. Because because basically you've only got, you know, you've only got a four hour window or a six hour window, depending on what the event is, to make it an, a, a great occasion. Yeah. So if you're doing things that are okay or, you know, that are all right or playing songs that are, you know, that are okay, you're, you're really missing the window to try and make it really a great celebration. Because generally, you know, people only have one 21st, they only have one 30th, they have one 40th, 50th, they have one, and I used to say they have one wedding. Yes, we have done a few people's second weddings, but we never would have thought of that as repeat-type business. But definitely, uh, you know, people are doing those things with the intent of doing it once. Yeah. And really, so, you know, you've got one chance to make it right. So a lot of prep work went into that, and I realised that having after having a lot of, you know, a lot of people in the team, that it was a really hard job to manage. It was really hard to manage so many different personalities and so many different styles of jobs and so many different styles of clients that want a particular, you know, music or particular entertainment. And sometimes when it was, you know, the last job, we would put a DJ on that probably wasn't the ideal DJ, maybe one that was already assigned to another job to do that one. And it took me a long time or, you know, a few years to realise that, you know, that's not a smart business and it's time to say no to those jobs and pass them on to somebody else. Okay, so with those jobs where you felt maybe you didn't have the right, let's just use the word talent, if you didn't have the right talent to send out to do that job at its best, you actually started basically just saying no to that work. You started doing that, absolutely. And what did that do for your brand and Uh, for the business? Obviously, it would have been easier. I mean, I'm assuming you would have had less negative 
complaints or yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, and look, it's always good to get negative feedback because unless you get negative feedback, you don't change anything within your business structure. And so, as long as you don't, you know, you take it as, and, and personally you feel bad and awful. But then when you actually, you know, really dig down into it, it's about whether you make the choice to. Make an adjustment yeah. to that so that that doesn't happen again. And so really there's not a lot you can do about that job that didn't work as well and you, you hear the complaint, you find out what, you know, what the situation was and how you can then better do that next time. And so what I found was, see, what people don't realise is back then you, you, I employed people who had a music collection. Now they said they loved music. That didn't make them a great DJ but they had a good music collection, so therefore I employed those because that's what you had with. Because I would have tool loved, box. yeah, I would have loved to employed some people with great personalities, but they had no, they had no tools to go with them, no CDs, no music. Yeah. And back then, even even further records. So really, what we did initially is we had people who came to us that loved music and had lots of you know, good music collections, and then we had to train them into becoming a DJ and being a good presenter and a good MC and and, and, and you know and skill level as a DJ. And after a while, we realised that that's probably not the only way to go. But we definitely workshopped that as a group. Yeah. And when someone had a bad problem or a, a bad situation, at our weekly meetings, we would workshop that so that no one would have that going forward. So you've gained a certain amount of insight there that a lot of business owners probably never really get. And a lot of the time when you hear about it, it's almost presented as a theoretical construct more than anything. But if you were to say to the average sole trader or tradie or entertainer or comedian or whatever, key to your success is going to be saying no to work. It's almost antithetical to what most people think, which is say yes to everything and try and make it work. Was there a moment where you just realised, I've got to think differently about this because I'm presenting such a unique product that traditional business sense doesn't make sense. It is. It is totally unique, and that's like I thought. I initially I wanted did, to. Did you have pushback from your team or people involved in the business? Or look, letting people go is always tough. But yeah. if you're letting them go for the right reasons and you share and, and honest with them, uh, it's tough, but it's it's for the best yeah. uh, for everybody. So you let them go on and find their niche and let them know that they, maybe they mightn't have been up to standard, and so they need to go and work on that. Uh, or they can, you know, push back against that and say, cool, I'll go and start on my own, and that's fine, and some of those did that, and that's okay. And then they realise how you know, how much work they had to do to, to, to bring it up to a certain standard or to keep that momentum going. Uh, plus also it allowed our brand to stay as a brand because people um, went to Bowen's Entertainment and how we wanted to brand it as a fun, entertaining-style thing. If I gave them – I mean, I had some quiet DJs uh, and they stepped up to the plate when it was time to entertain, but they were very quiet and reserved, you know, when it wasn't entertainment time. Uh, but they know that that's what we expected of them. We expected them to, you know, get out from behind the console. That was the biggest thing is if you stick behind your console, then, you know, you, you're a human jukebox. <laughs> And, no one wants to pay premium money for that. You know, and we, and so we started jukeboxes. You know, we started hiring out jukeboxes. And, and if the guys didn't entertain, I said, look, I can, I can, you know, charge $250 for a jukebox and people will be happy and love it. Yeah. So if you don't get out from beyond the console, then, you know, I'll hire them a jukebox and save them a heap of money. I was definitely not their boss. I was definitely their coach. You know, I looked at me as the coach and we were definitely a team and, and, and we worked on things within the team to, to, to make that structure work even better. Yeah. So, you know, I spent a lot of hours in the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s, is really building that team up and really working on the training. We had training sessions all the time, you know, and, and really trying to build that. And, and I, I worked really hard at that and realised that, you know, I thought at the time that I'd be able to franchise it, but I realised that, you know, it's very difficult to franchise a personality. I can put the structure in place, but that person's still got to go out and be themselves. And they can't be a Steve Bowen, they've got to be themselves. They've got to do their style, maybe with our structure, but they've got to present in their style. So I encourage that. You know, I encourage them to be themselves. Don't be another me. Don't be a second Steve Bowen because that doesn't work. You've got to be the first John Smith or whoever. That's interesting. And saying no has been a really powerful thing to actually, we meet with every one of our clients now, especially wedding clients. We meet with every one of them before we even take the job. As in face-to-face, in person, yeah. Yeah, where possible. Otherwise, we'll do it online through a Zoom or a Skype meeting or yep. or, or at, at, at minimum a telephone call conversation over an hour. Yeah, okay. And that's just to get a feel on their vibe for you and your vibe for them. And Absolutely. Like, you know, we don't just do it and it's not – 
uh, and not a sense of arrogance, but we've uh, a function. We will, we want to get functions. We market for functions, and our logo is serious fun. That's our branding. So we want to make sure that yep, we're very serious about making sure people have a lot of fun. Yeah. And so if they don't want that style of event, then they might be better off to go somewhere else, and they might be better off to take a job that's going to be better suited to us. So it's a dual factor. It works both ways. Now, it doesn't mean you tell the client when they come in, hi, yeah, you, you guys are no good clients. You guys are duds. Um, yeah, you can go somewhere else. But just suggest to them that um, there might be other options available for you guys that might be better suited because this isn't our area of expertise. If they've got a particular style or genre of music that we don't know, like if someone came to me and said, hi, we want you to do an Indian wedding and want all Indian music, well, then that wouldn't be our style. Yeah, okay. You know, and so therefore put them onto somebody that can do multicultural weddings. Yeah, okay. That's really interesting. So what I I did give Steve a heads up that this was going to happen today. It's the first time it's ever happened. I actually reached out to the audience about getting some questions. So this first one is actually from someone who wanted to remain anonymous, but <laughs> okay, sure. This is not one of my ex staff. <laughs> no, this is a question from a friend of mine, but they Go for it. yeah. So, this is someone that I knew through the music scene. Have you always known that servicing those smaller towns in the region was important for your business? Well, I mean, you never forget where you've come from, and you know there are things that we still do. I still plenty do plenty of charity events and so do my team as well too. So they'll donate their time and they understand it's a charity event. And there are other times that we do charity events where we charge for and we and we discount it down and sponsor back into it. And there are other events where that we charge full rate, depending on, you know, what it is and where it is and 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 the difference. So, it, it, you know, it really – but we put a lot back into the community. Uh, we put a lot back into – uh, you know, the jobs that we're doing and, and, and other places. So we really enjoy that aspect of it. And I really believe in the what you throw out is what you get back. And that's the boomerang theory. Yeah. And that's why another reason why. So we've kept the branding, or kept the branding very, very clean, very simple, and, and very easy to understand. You know, serious fun is very simple to understand. And it makes sure that, that you've, we've got a team now that can do a myriad of things. So they can do emceeing, uh, they can do, you know, like some of the team, you know, I get them. They they might do drawing. Some of them might do uh, trips tricks with napkins. Some of them might do magic. Some of, you know. So I want them to bring extra things into their show, for want of a better word, to add value and to you know to add that entertainment factor. Oh, that's awesome. So the little little the little person. We still do, we still do functions in Burr and Buttock. We still do functions at, at Yak and Danda. We, we, you know, we still do functions. They, you know, they're still functions. They're still know, human and, beings. And, absolutely. And see, what a lot of people, what our business has turned into, people think your business is about music, and our business is about people. Yeah. So that's that was a really big turnaround to make sure that, even though music's really important and it's one of the things we use to facilitate it. Our, our business isn't just music. It's about people and about entertainment. And that's why, you know, like if you get a plumber, you don't ask the plumber, hey, what sort of tools have you got? You ask the plumber to fix your problem. So what happens is when people have got a problem for a party or, you know, they want a solution, so they want entertainment for that uh, party because you can get music for anywhere now. You know, like actually um, the general public has got more music than us because we aren't technically allowed to use Spotify and we aren't allowed to use those things from a commercial basis. So, yeah, you go to an event and, and the general public said, hey, you got this song here? Well, why haven't you got it? I've got it. Here, yeah. look, it's on my phone. Yeah. Um, you know, play it from this. And so, you know, we're trying to do what we can to make sure that we uphold the industry uh, and that we purchase our music legally and we do it that way. But they are so, the music industry is so far behind. Uh, you know, the reason why we, you know, from a, from a licensing point of view, commercially, it's crazy. I'll tell this little story just to re-emphasise what Steve's getting at there. People get very confused about music. Yeah. And... In my previous role, I can give an example of there's a commercial version of Spotify, which you can own, which you can basically pay a fee for. Yeah. And the UK version of that, which has licensing for Australia, that's called Soundtrack Your Brand. And Soundtrack Your Brand has a lot of playlists and a lot of mood-oriented music, but it has about one ten thousandth of the, the catalogue of Spotify. So to be able to actually play the Spotify catalog through the licensed channel, you have to have a personal premium Spotify account and then push those playlists to soundtrack your brand. So the business has to have a person, an individual's account linked to their business account to be able to play music in the business. 
Which is, yeah. And, which and, is and, just convoluted, but this is the biggest modern music company. Whether, even though they're not making any money, obviously, I mean, that all comes down to paying rights holders and whatever, but that's a different argument. But well, we've opened up a big can of worms here. <laughs> so basically, to, to, from a general public point of view, is that um, you know we're licensed to play uh, particular songs that are within Australia and and you know that are, that are okay from the record companies. Otherwise, we would go to the record companies personally. So there is a, a, a you know a license now, and through the DJAA, we've finally been talking to those bodies. They've got a, a group called One Music, and One Music, what's well, it's called One Music, but it's still um, you know it's still APRA uh, PPC. Uh, AMCOS uh, and ARIA. So they, they're the four bodies within Australia and they all have different uh, parts of the song that they, that they look after. Some look after the, the writer, some look after the lyricist, uh, some look after the, the person who's performed the music and then uh, or, 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 or played the music and then the, uh, the actor who's Public performed broadcast. It. Yeah. So it's, it's really, it's, it, they really need to make it a simple system um, because it's really, I think... Because know, there's a distinct difference between if I have a private function and I have Spotify on my phone and I go put it on yeah. as an individual versus you as a professional in the music industry. Yeah. If I walk up to you and say, hey, I've got it on my phone, can you play it? That's a completely different situation when it comes to licensing because you're held, I guess, to a higher standard of... Well, we've got a we've got a licence now where we can play... They've finally got a commercial licence that we can play the music... We can play the music commercially, for yeah. want of a better word, yeah. but only based on uh, not all those songs that are on Spotify, based on, you know, up to 20-odd thousand songs. Now, you only use, you would only use <laughs> no more than 250 songs in a night, you yeah. know, really, in any sort of particular thing, and often they're a similar one as well too. But the stupid thing about that is, you know, what's the definition of a private party and what's not? So, it, anyway, the general public doesn't probably need to know that, but no. but that's the reason why there's you know that no we but it's charge, interesting because it's an extra complication. Well, we people would never th- more. people I mean, would never think that there's regulatory pressure, mm. and there is probably nothing really that I can think of in intellectual property that's more complicated than music licensing at this point in time. No, absolutely. And um, you've got it. You're you have to deal with that. Yeah, yeah. And and we we're involved with that. So the the general public then doesn't realise that why Johnny up the road or Mary up the road, oh, look, she charges 500 bucks, you know, um, well, why are you charging more than that, you know? Well, you know, we've got costs on there and, you know, maybe they didn't even purchase their songs, you know, and they're just doing it from a Spotify list. If you go to somewhere and you've got no internet, man, and and so that's why we've made our business more than just music. Our business about is about entertainment and sometimes the entertainment we do has got no music. Yeah. And that's where I wanted to get to that stage where it's about us being a personality or, you know, and, and by no means are we comedians and say jokes and things of that nature, but that might be some of the ammunition that some of my team have to add flavour to a particular, you know, to a particular event. Yeah. As a former musician and songwriter and someone who still plays guitar regularly, to use the word commodity and to say that about music almost breaks my heart. Yeah. But on the availability side and the distribution side, music has been commoditized. Yeah. Like it is yeah. super available to anyone that has even a, even the slowest of data connections on their phone or their device. So it's really about filling up the night with the things that aren't commodities. And that's the thing, and it's not so. It's not just about music. It's about how you put it together, how you plan your sets, how you, one song works after another. Reading the crowd, whether that's going well. Do we change it to a particular style? Do we go from R and B to rock? Do we go from rock to pop? Do we go into dance? How long do we leave that go for? That's the big key because you know people can put a, a you know people say, oh Steve, can you give me a playlist for for an event I've got coming up? What you know you've got to do those things live. If you don't do those things live, you've got to read you, the room. If yeah. you put a playlist on and you've got four R&B songs on there and the first one hasn't worked, those next three are going to be horrible. Yeah. You know, not going to work. So therefore you've got to, you know, mix that up and change that around. So they're the sort of things that, that people are paying for someone to use their intellectual, you know, uh, intellectual um, intelligence to to run that show and to, and to be able to create and adjust and, uh, and flavour it as it's happening. I know for me back in the day we used to put together what we thought were awesome cover band set lists when I was playing in a cover band while yeah. I was at the end of university in the first maybe year or two out of uni. And we always had one or two songs that were like for us in each set. And then sometimes you would play one of those more rock, heavier oriented songs and the room would just go up a level. Yeah. And that was a good cue to us to 
stick them all together. Yeah. Because we were reading the room. Yeah. We're probably not going to be able to at one o'clock in the morning bust out Rage Against the Machine. Yeah. But at 10, 8, 10 p.m. when people have kind of been half asleep and then suddenly we're playing Bulls on Parade. Yeah. We know that oh, this is probably a good time to put a lot of those songs together. And then you can lift it up. Then you can lift your room up as well too, see where that's happening, and then change your playlist around live because you go, well, we had those three, but this is going well, let's do this one, you yeah. know, and to be able to adjust that. And I guess is that does that go back to how you were saying that you had people that didn't just have collections but were also maybe had more expertise on DJing certain events? Yeah, that's right. Building yeah. those playlists. Yeah, so there are some, you know, some of my team were great for kids. Great at great at, at youth events and school events, uh, but yet they probably weren't as happy and comfortable to do a wedding yeah, okay. or a corporate event, uh, you know. And so, therefore, you're more flexible guys who, who and, and team members who who were able to do lots of different various things were probably better for those who were more because a corporate event is probably one of the hardest things to do because everyone works there. Like, say, a work Christmas party, everyone works there and they want to go for the free drinks and the end of year party, but doesn't mean they all like each other. And so therefore, but the the synergy or the room, the atmosphere within the room is very different at a work Christmas party uh, from a big organisation than it is at someone's wedding because everyone's there to, you know, or that someone's there for a special occasion. So someone's there for the 21st or someone, because they're all connected in some way. They don't, the only way these guys are connected is if they they work for the same employer, but they mightn't actually even work with each other or or even know each other for that matter. So therefore to get people to interact, play some games, do some activities, uh, and, and do some things that allow them to interact is also another form of the entertainment. There's more heavy lifting maybe in that. Yeah. Just to get people together. And, and it takes years and years. Like, you know, I used to train DJs and we would have someone on for two years and you think, cool, they're really experienced. That's when they really started to learn. So after, so you, you had to have a DJ. And to have a DJ last two years, I, I worked out the other day I'd had more than um, – uh, just under 80 DJs over the time that I've been going for 30 years in the business. I've been DJing for 35. And even now, I probably wouldn't call it DJing. Uh, I, I'm probably more entertaining. And, but by no means am I a singer. And I know that I'm a very bad singer. So therefore, I do everything else I can <laughs> to make it fun, to make it enjoyable, and to make it, you know, uh, entertaining. I would love to be a singer, yeah. but uh, my range is not there. And I don't have the patience to. You know, go to a singing coach and, and practice and learn and learn and learn. Yeah, well, I've lost all singing ability that I used to have. <laughs> I used to sing in choir at school and then I basically just let it go to mush. So so we did say earlier in the episode that we were going to throw some questions to you from the audience, Steve. So while I dig into my phone because it's probably yeah, been, it. it's probably been churning away there a little bit, I wanted to ask you maybe one quick question. I had it mentioned to me recently when I did a comedy set that venues and entertainment establishments are looking for a way to come up with different forms of entertainment because people aren't going out so much with the intention of, quote-unquote, this is not my language, but it was what was used, pick up. Yep. So with all of the dating apps and the availability people have to each other to not have to go out to meet strangers or you know loose acquaintances in public, has that impacted the DJ world to you? That's a great question, and I probably saw that happening those you know ten odd years ago, and, and and even earlier, and that's why we moved away from the from the that regular venue, the pub, the nightclub type scene, so that uh, realizing that it's really about the private events for us because we get a we got a better feedback from that as well too. We're able to charge a, a better rate for that as well too, but it was also meant you had to do a lot of homework and you only got one chance to make it you know to make it work. So there's definitely an element of risk involved, but the more preparation you can do before the event, uh, the less, you know, the less risk there is for, you know, something to go wrong. And things like, you know, we take, we've got extra speakers on hold, on, on ready to go. We've got extra staff ready to go on hold if someone is sick or not well. We've got um, extra computers um, where we've got our music systems on as well too. So we have a, a number of backup systems in place uh, with jukeboxes. Uh, I've got uh, five jukeboxes and I never book five out anymore. I would have back in, you know, 20 years ago, but now I book out four. Redundancy. Always got uh, that, that contingency plan to, you know, to look after someone if their party's gone because you've got one chance at that party. If the you know, music dies or the speakers die or or the DJ dies, we've got to have something in place, you know. Yeah. So Excellent. Yeah, let's hope yeah, that hasn't yeah. happened yet. Fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so maybe just one last thing before we get into the audience questions. Obviously, the dating apps weren't such a big thing there. What was it about the future of 
you know, venues that would normally have a paid DJ, what was it that clued you into the fact that maybe that industry may see somewhat of a decline over time? Because it obviously wasn't Tinder at the time. Well, of- a bit like what you said is, is that other people wanted to approach the venue and offer their services because people wanted to be a you know DJ or be in the limelight and maybe not necessarily be a DJ, but, but you know, be in that area where they could pick up or they could uh, look like they're a, uh, you know, a rock star for want of a better word. Yep. And so, you know, everyone wants to be some form of superstar with whatever they're doing. And so therefore to offer their service for less so they can get, you know, get an in, a lot of venue managers would say, oh, okay, that's cool. They didn't understand the, the value necessarily, not all of them, the value of good entertainment and someone regular, something with experience as well too. And so therefore we found that, and, and, and on those nights as well, if you go to a pub, uh, not everybody is there to celebrate something good. Yeah. And so therefore your crowd reaction and, you know, with with trouble, um, with, with too much uh, drinking and all that sort of nature can really be an uncomfortable night for you as the entertainer or as the DJ. And we didn't, well, I didn't want to put my my team into those positions uh, as much as it was happening all the time. And not that it was big in the way of violence, but there is definitely an element of that about making sure you've got a safe working environment for your team as well too. Uh, Little things like what we do now, uh, even when they've got to go more than 100 kilometres, um, we get accommodation for our events. So, you know, we ask for accommodation. We ask for the, you know, the... the, uh, the booking person or the client to supply that accommodation so that because it's an hour you know you finish your function at 12 uh you, and you pack up for an hour and then if you got to drive another you know two hours home you know you're home at three four in the morning it's danger time um, yeah, yeah and you've been there since you know 12 o'clock or before lunch that day yeah you know so it's a really long it can be a really long um you know, working day so making sure that we had good functions where people were going to celebrate you know, good events is the reason, and one of the other reasons why we got away from the pub and the nightclub type type event. Plus, also because of the fact that that not every uh, nightclub or pub owner saw the value of entertainment. See, what happens is um, entertainment isn't really there to make you more money. It's there to keep people longer in those style of, of, of venues so that they can buy more drinks and eat food. Yeah. That's where the venues generally make their money from, from through the drinks and through the food because it's not always easy because, you know, like if you if you charge on the door to pay for the band or pay for the DJ, people are reluctant to do that, but also it's very rare that you would get enough off the door to pay for your entertainment and then you make even more money on the drinks. So, you know, it's, it's the same as, you know, as RSL clubs. You know, people go in and spend the money on gambling, so that's why they can subsidise food and, and other different events because they're not making the money directly from that. And so entertainment isn't designed, you know, people say, oh, Steve, we're going to do a fundraiser, we want to do a disco uh, at our event. Well, that's not, they're not great fundraisers. They're great social events and they're great to get people out and mix and mingle and have a good time, but they don't always make lots of money uh, from those things, when you have one of those events and you do an auction or you've got other things to, to raffle off uh, and you've got other things for people to purchase, that's how you really generate your dollars from those sort of events. So that's where, you know, moving away from from the nightclub, the pubs and, 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 and the RSL clubs type thing was a, a decision because we, we didn't want to uh, be at venues that people weren't there to celebrate good things all the time. Well, that, that makes complete sense when you put and, it like and that. And yeah. we did, and the profit margin in those was really minimal. Yeah, It was really minimal because often those venues had their own gear, and so we were just it was just a a, a staff, and we were providing staff, yeah. and uh, you know with a with a minimal with a minimal return on investment. But we were giving our staff work, but we weren't really making a lot of uh, a lot of profit out of it. Yeah. Okay. Well, that makes complete sense. So are you ready for some rapid fire questions here, Go. Steve? I'm assuming they're going to be rapid fire. If not, we might treat them as such. So people who know me know that I'm a basically died-in-the-wall bandits obsessive yep. basketball nut. This is from Brad George Yep. on Facebook. Tell us about your stint with the Border Bandits. What sticks out from your period with the Border Bandits? Yeah, so most people won't know that if you've known me later in life. So I was a big basketball nut. My family was. My dad was treasurer of the Aubrey Basketball Association for several years. Uh, we used to play at the old Chook Shed uh, that is now at the showgrounds and yep. before we moved to the big stadium. And every time when we represented Aubrey, uh, we, we represented Aubrey, I was in the Aubrey, Aubrey Cougars as a junior, we would go away to other 
stadiums that had full-size courts because the, the courts at the Orby Showgrounds were three-quarter size. <laughs> they weren't full-size. So we would actually be tired and buggered and we wouldn't make the distance because just that little bit extra on the court time, you weren't trained, you weren't tuned for it, you weren't yeah. uh, fit for it, that little bit extra. And so we struggled as a as a... As a uh, as a as a representative yeah. <laughs> club to, to 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 go well, we had some good players back then too, and some great coaches. So um, both my brothers played with the border border bulldogs when they first started. They were from Wodonga, and then it became uh, the border bandits. And so I made the border bandits squad. I didn't actually make the top ten, but I was in the fifteen, and wow. I used to train every week for okay. a season. And so I warmed up before a few games, before uh, all the games within that season. But I didn't actually get any court time. Uh, but I always you know trained with them. And I played with the Aubrey Cougars, so yes, I was in the Aubrey Bandit squad in one season. Uh, I was uh, I was eighteen. And I've got to be honest, Steve. This question from Brad here, I honestly, and this is not to take anything away from you as obviously a great athlete in your younger days, but I thought he must have meant how you involved off the court. There you go. Yeah. So. So no, I'm a big uh, I'm big into basketball, yeah. uh, and and you know I I started basketball when I was five and uh, played. Yeah, we, we would play five nights a week yeah. back then. And you know, so when we were, when I was 10, we were playing under 14s. And when I was 13, I was playing A grade. So it, yeah. it was uh, short. I was short, but yeah. Uh, yeah. we, uh, we had, some, had some skill. Bit so. of tenacity. <laughs> okay, the next one's actually from my little brother, Cam Liston, on Facebook. You've kind of covered this, but we'll get to it more specifically. Do you mentor young DJs? And further to that, as someone that's been in the industry a long time, is it easy or hard for you to keep up with new music trends? First question is I mentor people all the time and not just young DJs. I mentor people, um, young people, older people. I mentor people generally from a, a mental health point of view, a physical point of view, and, and to get them in a, 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 to help them express themselves. So I do a lot of mentoring uh, and I love coaching people just to get the most out of their life. So I mentor a lot of DJs around Australia as well because I'm the chairperson of the DJ Association. Uh, and so a lot of them you know, ring me up and say, Steve, what would I do? I had one of the DJs from Queensland ring me this morning to tell me about his job. How would he quote on it? Um, you know, what do you think you should be asking for? You know, and so, I mean, I don't tell people what to charge, but I definitely help them uh, with uh, great ways to, to find out what they're comfortable with. Yeah, okay. So I mentor a lot of young DJs, um, whether they work for me or work for other other places, uh, happy to, and even if they've got their own business, I still uh, support them um, as much as I, I can. Second part of that question it was, was just how hard or not hard is it for you as someone who's been in the industry a long time to keep up with new music trends? And I guess further to that, I'll expand my brother's question here. Is it even important? Great question. Look, it's it's not hard. Uh, it's definitely more difficult if you're not, if they're not songs you listen to all the time. So I, I listen to a number of different radio stations just to get a feel for what's happening. And so I, I, I chop and change all the stations from a music point of view. Yeah. I get an industry CD sent to me every month. So we get new music every month. So it's really easy to sit down, listen to that. I have a listen to that before I put it into our jukeboxes uh, and, 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 I um, assign it a genre, so it goes into the jukebox as well too, so I'm hearing it all the time. And plus also I still do a lot of youth events, so I still do a myriad of, of, of events, so it, that really keeps me in touch with what's happening and what's going on. So it's not difficult, but it's not as important because people will ask you for what they want nowadays. Yeah, it's okay. very much a, you know, like they'll say, hey, you've got this song, and if I say, yeah, I've got it, or I'll look it up, and I go, yeah, cool, I've got it. Whereas once upon a time, you know, I had to know where it was. I have to buy it on record or I have to buy it on CD. That's track six on yeah. this disc, and I keep that disc under the letter A or something. Correct. Well, I used to I used to um, keep my discs and my records or vinyl in genre, so it was never alphabetical, never alphabetalized. It was kept in genre, so rock and roll, pop, top forty, you know, rock, you know, R and B, and so okay. forth. Hmm. So I know that we're on a somewhat of a timeline here, Steve. So I'll just throw these next few at you, if that's okay. I guess as the boss, you get to decide what your own timeline, but this is from Travis S on Facebook. Why rally? So I was in driving rally, I would yeah. assume that means, and why did you choose the Evo as your track car? Great, uh, great question. So I started uh, driving, what happens is September 11 happened. I'm not sure whether we did this in part one, but no, September 11 happened don't think so. for me, no. and I was pretty much... Yeah, and I'll admit I was a workaholic. Okay, so I was a workaholic. I would work twenty-hour days. It was, you know, it was. You know, there were. I thought that this was the way to, you know, 
to the new life, for want of a better word. <laughs> September 11 happened and I went, wow, this this is crazy. You know, this world, I thought World War Three was going to start and we could pretty much all be gone. Uh, and it felt that way at the time. Yeah. And so I realised I was probably working more than I needed to. I needed to spend a bit more time with the family as well too and to do some fun things for me. Now, don't get me wrong, I love my work and I really, I, I'm really passionate about it. But I also need to do some things that are a bit different and a bit move removed. So cars back then were very much a, 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 a necessity to go from A to B. I loved driving. I thought it was great. I used to drive to lots of events. That's why I would take a job in Mount Gambia and, and then drive back again. Just for the drive? Well, yeah, because I loved it. Um, you know, driving in a maybe a, a Ford Econovan, uh, it wasn't probably the greatest um, experience in the world, but I still enjoyed it and loved it. Yeah. And so I bought a classic car after September 11. And I bought uh, an old MG, uh, and, uh, I, and I, I had that. And it was cool, and I started driving around. I thought, "Love that! This is really cool." And I drove it. Uh, uh, and someone said, "Oh, you can drive them around Winton if you like. You can take your own car." I thought, "Oh, cool!" So I went to the fun day and the drive day, and I took my MG and drove around Winton because you think you drive fast on the roads, and you're really not, right? Yeah, you know, like you think you might go quick around a corner and you know, do a little. Yeah, you know, a little slide here and a little slide there. You think, oh, well, I'm really cool. I'm really going fast. Until you actually get onto the track and realise that you don't have to look over your shoulder whether, you know, someone's watching you, whether there's police there or doing the wrong thing. And it's definitely made me a much better driver um, on, you know, as a daily driver on the road because I know that I can go to a track and really, you know, uh, give it a squirt and really have a go at it. And so I drove the the MG around uh, Winton and I absolutely loved it. And I thought, oh, this is amazing. I loved it. And I thought, well, I better not wreck the MG because it was a classic car and it was really well presented. So I bought an old race car. I bought, uh, I looked on the internet and I found an old Cortina. And uh, it was funny because Cortina was one of my first ever cars I ever had. And I didn't do that on purpose, but I just found the cheapest one. Came full circle. Yep. Bought the Cortina and started to race that. I started to do sprint meets at that Winton. I used to go down Fridays and practice because when I do something, I'm all in. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, like when I, so, you know, I played golf for a little stint and you know, one time there I was playing three and four and five times a week and my wife said, are you going to come home? You know, so, you know, I did that for probably 12 months and then I realised that, yeah, golf's not for me either. So I started racing and then I wanted to get a car and, I, and, I, and racing round and round a track though became, well, a little bit monotonous for me. I'm, I like adventures. I like to, you know, change things up. And so I tried a... Um, what was called a Dutton Rally at the time. And I did one of those and that was really cool. But I needed a vehicle that I could, was road registered as well. And the Cortina was definitely a track car only. It was, you know, it was chopped out. There was things that you would never, it didn't have, you know, blinkers on it, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I, I bought uh, an old Evo and uh, I bought an old Evo too. And I bought it off uh, off uh, David West, who's West Tractor Parts in Aubrey. And he used to do rally, it was a gravel rally car, but I wanted to do, do tarmac rally. So I, I, I bought it for, to do the Dutton Rally and then I, uh, and I did enough racing around Winton for, you know, s- several years that it, before I wanted to go and I did some of the, you know, the um, state championships runs and things of that nature and, and it started going okay. But I didn't want to do an event where if someone else crashes into me, you know, you, you can be T-boned and it's not your fault and you're just a passenger. And So I started to do the tarmac rallies and I did Targa High Country in 2010. Absolutely loved it. We finished the event and all went well and, you know, didn't come off. And, uh, you know, and I kept going from there and, you know, I started progressing and going really well. So then I did, tar- and my goal was always to do Targa Tasmania. I saw the Love the Beast video by Eric Banner and I thought, wow, that's what I want to do. So, uh, and that was it. I got to do that in 2016. I did Targa Tasmania in the Evo 2. I got that pumped up and that excited about it that I thought, uh, cool, I know what I do. I want to see whether I'm a really good driver, so I'm going to buy a better car and, you know, see where I can match it with the big boys. So I bought an Evo 10, which put me into the, the GT4 uh, category and without really doing a lot of research on it because I'm a bit of a rush of blood type person. Anyway, I got the Evo 10 and it was look, it was great. It was fast. It was really different to get used to. And the guy that, that I was getting some advice from said, look, mate, you might want to keep your Evo 2 because not everyone, you know, really gets into the Evo 10s. You know, they're a bit more work to drive. And, you know, if you're used to driving a Cortina and an MG and, you know, and that sort of thing and, and older style cars, you mightn't like the feel of it. I thought I couldn't work out what he was talking about. Sure enough, you know, I had the Evo 10 for three years and I've moved it on and gone back and I kept the Evo 2 and I've kept that, developed that a little bit more. And now, um, so the Evo 2 gives me a great feel. It's an all-wheel drive. uh, So it's great if it does rain at some of those events. It gives us a a little bit of an advantage over the two-wheel drive cars. Plus also, 
I love the feel that it gives you. There's a lot of there's a lot of feedback in this through the steering wheel, so I know uh, what, what's happening within the car. Uh, it's great. I love changing gears. You know, the Evo 10 was a flappy paddle auto, okay. and it was just, I was bored. You know, I was bored, and it was really underwhelming. It was fast, but it didn't give me the feeling that I was going the fast. Because it was so Because yeah. it was so nice and comfortable. It was like, this shouldn't be right. This isn't a race car. I was used to it making noise and farting and carrying on and, you know, and yep. and, and kicking back on you and, and throwing you back in your seat. So that's why I've got the Evo 2. Um, I'm really familiar with it. I really love it. It gives me a great uh, gives me a great sensation, and I'm really at one with that car now. So we just did uh, uh, a round of the Australian, the first round, and uh, one early modern, and we came third outright, and thir- third outright. So we the only thing that beat us was a, a V10 Viper, a Dodge Viper, and an Audi TT, both 2017 models, and this is a 1994. I'm assuming those are both rocket fuel Sort oh, of spaceship cars. They're, and, they're crazy. Yeah. You know, they're crazy. They've got launch control and you now they're all autos. And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely nuts. So so we, we're punching well above our weight, but uh, but we love it. It's a really great experience and, and I really enjoy it. Okay. Well, Trav is a massive car head. I think he added one of the first really well done up WRXs around here from memory. So well, he WRX loves and the Evos are pretty yeah, similar. Those all similar drive. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So just quickly, this one is from a Laura G on Facebook. This is more a funny question, but it's probably the one that everyone kind of wants to ask. What's the story behind your hair? <laughs> okay, um, great story. I did mention it not long ago. I was on radio doing an interview and they were interviewing me about different things. So my hair is part of my branding, uh, but a lot of people don't realise. So the reason why I've actually got long hair and why I've kept it long, and look, one day I'll cut it, I'm sure. When I was 27, my mum died and my mum had curly hair. And I had it mine, I didn't have it long, but it was it was buffy, you know, type thing. And I used to comb it and it was always wavy. And so basically as a tribute to my mum, I've grown my hair since my mum died. Okay. So it's it's a tribute to my mum. So, you know, I haven't, not everyone knows that publicly and that's okay, uh, but that's pretty much what it is. So my mum had curly hair and she looked, she would have kicked my ass uh, if I had long hair, but <laughs> but going through that stage but after having it she go oh isn't that beautiful you yeah know? okay so there you go so it's uh, no, that, it's a tribute to that my is, mom. that's awesome mate yeah and just one last one this is from this is from zoe s on facebook i might send you the full text of her comment because it's quite big she also said at the end you should write a book so that's something you might have to talk to that's zoe in about. the process she's one of the you know she's a bit of an editing wizard i'll so. never well I'll never write a book <laughs> Because I won't do pen to paper because that's really tough no, for but me, I, but I'll definitely narrate a book. I think that Zoe could help you with that. She's, okay, great. She's Zoe, give very me a call. In, she's very intelligent. I've actually got the person. book title. I've got the book chapters. Yep. I just need to put the content in there. Content okay, in there. Very good. Cool. Okay, I've given you both a job there. Great. So this is Zoe's <laughs> question to finish up for today. How do you marry up the seriousness of the professional side of what you do while still create, like maintaining and emphasising the creative side of your work. It's just something that as businesses get bigger, if they're built around a creative personality, I guess they don't always get to maintain that the way you have. And that's probably why I've gone full circle. Like now from going from 20 staff to back to three, I was probably losing a bit of my creativity. I was I, I became the manager of people rather than doing what I started the business out as is to entertain and, uh, and and use that as a craft. And I became more focused as the coach for, for all my team. And then, you know, my jobs were staying. I find that I wasn't you know, giving my all or, or getting the satisfaction out of the jobs I wanted to. So that's what I've done. I've scaled it back uh, and and really so I can be more creative and plus so I can have a bit more time uh, to myself as well too. And, and it's an interesting thing because a lot of people – uh, look at me as maybe being funny or something of that nature, but I don't tell jokes. So I'm not a joke teller. I'm not, you know, I don't get up there and just do stand up is a really tough gig. And I know that you do that. And, it, and, and my hat's off to you and anyone else who does that. Um, I'm a situational joker or a situational gagger for want of a better word. And I'm sure I'm a bit of a dag and I like to have fun. So yes, I'm funny, but I don't tell jokes. And that's what people say. Oh, you're going to tell a few jokes here. No. I'm not going to tell jokes, but I'll make something and I'll turn it into fun. So it's a very situational thing that I've learned to trust that it, that is okay for me to do. Uh, and as long as it, you know, there's definitely a line where you don't want to cross, and not, and that doesn't mean you do it at every function. And so I've been really being able to match and mirror and match different events and different functions, but also still have that branding. So I'm still able, and it's really great to still be professional. 
um, but have fun at the same time. And so that's, there's a real fine line there. Do you think that maybe the fact that you've built a brand around what is clearly your core competency as an individual, being a creative, entertaining person, but also being very serious about delivering a quality product, do you, do you think if you had tried to build a different brand that it would have worked? Uh, look, I think it would have, but I've been, I've learned, and see, I was still always, I was always um, outgoing as a as a younger person, but nowhere near as what I am now. I've actually learnt that and developed that. And where, whereas it's usually the other way around, you know, usually you're outgoing as a as a younger person, then you sort of you you go a little bit more into your into your zone as you get older, a bit more mature, and you you, know, you don't do all the things you would do. But yeah. I love exploring things. I love I love trying to give something else a go, even if there's nothing wrong with what I'm doing now. See, what happens is what I've found is people always wait until they've got a problem or until something's broken before they actually do something about it. Whereas me, I really think, what if I get a little bit more? What if I do this a little bit differently? What will be the result? So you're trying to break the business yourself as and opposed all, to breaking... <laughs> I'm always trying to break new ground yeah, that's good. and have a look at different things because change um, can be scary, but I look at it as exciting. And 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 it means I'll either learn something new about way to do something better, or I'll learn something new about how not to do something. Right, I say. Well, I think we're pretty much done, and I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Was there anything that you came here thinking about today that we haven't touched on? Look, not really. I was happy for you to lead where where it goes, but I really, you know, the boomerang theory is not just something that I go and talk about when I go to schools or businesses or other workshops. It's a lifestyle that I've I've chosen. It's my purpose of what you throw out is what you get back. And the reason why I did the boomerang theory or why I named it that, because I could have called it karma, but I can't really show you karma. Can't, you can't see it. Um, you know, I could have called it the, you know, the pay it forward type thing as well too. And everyone has got that own particular style, but that's what resonated with me. And I was doing a camp or, or actually I was doing a facilitation course to, to facilitate youth, um, you know, at, 20 odd years ago and they needed us to come forward with a story of, of how we could empower youth and how we could uh, you know make an impact and so I started talking about, about my life story but I needed to have a I needed to have like a, a heading for it or some form of branding for it so I worked on the boomerang theory because I was proud to be Australian and about people generally know that you know boomerangs generally you know you throw them out and they come back and so what you throw out is what you get back so I was able to take boomerangs with me and I I've decorated one that's really negative, um, awful, uh, got skull and crossbones on it and dark and so forth, and I've decorated another one that's happy and bright uh, and, and, and positive. And so we all throw boomerangs in our, in our life metaphorically, and in my experience, the more good ones I throw, I've found out the more good ones come back to me. So I've used that as if you don't like what you're getting back in your life, Take responsibility for it and have a look at what you're throwing out. Wow. Don't don't go, oh, they're no good or they're this. Have a look at you of what you're throwing out. Now, in my experience, the more good boomerangs I throw out, the more better ones come back. Now, you don't throw them out to get them back. You throw them out because it feels good. You already get something back when you support somebody or help somebody else out. So that's always a great feeling. Then when someone tells you how great it was or or how you empowered them or inspired them, wow, that's that's you know, a big bonus. So have a look at what you throw out because if you don't like what you're getting back, maybe adjust what you're throwing out to the world, to people um, and to the, you know, the general public. Right, excellent, mate. So bowensentertainment.com.au for your professional stuff. Yes. I've just done the boomerangtheory.com.au um, as well. Oh, you do? Okay, uh, excellent. I, I, haven't, that... I haven't built a website yet, but I've just bought the domain name so we could start doing some things with that okay, because so... the book will be called The Boomerang Theory. And if people wanted to follow along with where you're providing some of this day-to-day positivity, I mean, I'm not the world's most positive person, but even <laughs> and people who know me well will know that I'm not really a massive self-development guy, but... I find myself watching. You, I think I when think you actually you're much more self-developed than you realise. When you have context on a real human being, yeah, not some wealthy yeah. person that's yeah. standing in front of a stadium, but when you can see it actually a real person in real life that's living out that stuff, it makes a lot more impact to me. Day one forty nine of my saw that of my morning. walks, so I'm on day one forty nine, and in with each walk, I try and talk about something positive or something, an action you can take place or t- to do to take on board, so it can hopefully help you within your life. Whether it and really the profound effect of actually the mental health of what's been doing of what I thought was just going to get fit 
the mental health aspect of it has been sensational. Uh, it's been really great, not only from me, you know, feeling fitter and walking, but also the feedback I've got from people as well too has been amazing. Yep. And look, really, you don't you think, oh, you know, I don't need to do this. I'll probably stop it. No one's really looking at it. No one cares. But you'd be amazed at how many people see it and talk to me about it that don't like the page or you know don't like the the post or don't comment on it. But there are you know it just it gets out there, and so really everybody can make a difference in this world. And so it's about uh, just, you know, doing one little thing to make a difference to one person is all that's required. It's not about doing on a multiple scale. And you're currently doing the 365 walks on Facebook. Correct, yeah. So the goal is to walk every day for 365 days. Excellent, mate. Well, you did it through winter, so now you're coming into a slightly nicer period of the year. And that's what I did. I thought I'll start it. I'll start it during when it's the hardest time. Because if you can get through the hardest time, uh, summer should be easy. Excellent. Very good, mate. That's good life advice. Okay, well, thank you, Steve. It's been a pleasure. And thanks so much for coming back and like giving us even more of your time. No, thanks, Josh. And if people didn't see that, that was a left-handed handshake yeah. I just gave to you. Yeah, that's probably why I sounded like I was going like this. And the reason for <laughs> that is because God created a few miracles and then he created right-handers. Thanks, mate. Yeah, okay. Bye-bye. <laughs> That was super interesting, but nothing of what I know that has happened to Steve Bowen recently because it's been in the news a lot was what I just listened to. Can you explain (laughs) how you missed that when you said originally we've covered up to 2020? Yeah. We're now in 2020. We are. So for anyone who doesn't know and was listening to that whole thing and it was all happy, happy, and it was a great story, Steve's actually in the last two months was involved with fighting fires and did a couple of night shifts and he was sharing a little bit of that experience, maybe more so than other people fighting the fires because I guess they don't have an audience like he does. He has an amazing platform. Yeah. That's fantastic and he obviously, and you know, we'll probably talk in the future about your stuff and fire-related stuff Yeah, just with being a volunteer and that. But I guess the thing that most people may know if that never came up, any intro I probably should have mentioned, is Steve recently was involved in a car accident when he yeah. was driving his rally car. He's back walking now, but he and he got back on his feet relatively quickly, but he did have a lower back injury. And hectic. It was I'm not sure where he manifested all of that positive energy from to be back in the public eye just a couple of days later. Do you know what? He sort of I think he's now that much of a figure that it'd be very hard to step away from it. Yeah. I I feel like I wouldn't know because no one cares that much about what I have to say, but I feel like there'd be that many people almost on his back that it'd be easier to step in than it would be to step away. Like he's got a lot of stuff going on. He's got a lot of projects and if he yeah. steps away from that, you know, he's he is the face. Yeah. So without the face <laughs> there, there's the yeah. face and the hair. Without the face and the hair there, then there's a lot less... Less to sort of sell, I suppose. So yeah, there's correct. a pressure point there. And it, I guess you're right. It's not just his own business. He's involved with yeah. him seeing local events for kids yeah. and all this different stuff yeah. that he's the face of. Yeah. 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 So it still doesn't negate how much hurting your back <laughs> could put no, your life on the rails. No, I'm but, not saying I, I hurt my leg and you saw how much I was sucking uh, end I, of last year. Geez, oh. I heard all about it. Oh, I know. I know. So. I mean, really, I've got nothing to complain about, yeah. but, yeah, credit to him. That's that's a big step up, wink, yeah. wink, to yeah. be able to just come out, roll out of that and, and just motor on. Do you mind if I share, because since this is Josh and Mel time at the end of these episodes, do you mind if I share why the content was recorded months ago but it didn't come out? Yes. Essentially. Well, I don't have a choice, so just do it. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you can you can say no. Yeah, no, no. I feel like you're going with it anyway, so just yeah. come. When the fires started, yeah, this is beyond just Steve. Okay, that was one of the few interviews I already had recorded. Yep. And my father, my dad was involved in the fires being up in Corryong. Yeah. And I was stressing from New Year's Eve to when stuff started to calm down. Yeah, it was full on. And there's a lot of people in this audience that probably had affected family, including yourself. Yep. I didn't feel comfortable putting content out in the world that was about me and us and 
drawing attention away to a creative thing when there were so many people in the world so, that were going through all of this stuff. Yeah. And that's obviously not an option if you're making a TV show or doing daily mm. radio or, yep. you know, you're someone on the news or whatever. But for me, it was a choice that I made that I didn't really want to be stealing attention away from anyone that was trying to raise money or yeah. using social media to keep up with news alerts or any of that stuff. Yeah. And Yeah, we didn't <laughs> want to be asking for coffees when the We didn't want to be getting no. people to buy us coffees. No. no, the coffees you can spend the money on other things yeah. around that time, yeah, for sure. It just felt so unimportant compared to what people were going through. Yeah. And then that kind of went straight into Steve hurting himself in the car accident. Yeah. So, and then I'm like, well, I really feel weird about putting it out now because there's a lot of local pressure on him to talk about yeah. that, the accident, his recovery. Yeah. It'd be weird for me to just, hey, this happened three months ago with the guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's really probably something that was already a month overdue. Yeah. Has become the better part of two months overdue. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I'm really happy to get it out because that first chapter of the show, this is pre-Mel, pre-producer Mel basically. Yeah. It was the biggest episode and the biggest guest and someone that I had a connection to right back into my childhood as an entertainer that I looked at and thought, that guy's legitimately entertaining and he's from around here. If you are a local within Aubrey Wodonga, you would have known or heard of Steve Bowen. Yeah. Like there's just no way you could have. Yeah. You would have had to have been living in a hole or under yeah. a rock somewhere to but, not know who yeah. he was. You might not know what he does, but you would know. Yeah. And it never felt like the mayor or a local politician or someone that yeah. was just forced into your life. Yeah. yeah. It was always, he, in my mind, was always attached to something enjoyable yeah. and positive. Do you know what I like about him? Again, that goes back to it's not about... It never makes it about him. It's about making other people happy, which yeah. is a really, it's a great skill and a tribute to have and it's not necessarily, it's natural, I think, for him and he's just put that on servo, like supercharge. It's not necessarily um, something that is relevant to yeah. or able to be executed by everyone and he's no, just. Not in a legitimate way. He puts you into a happy space. There are a lot of creative people in the world that use they're killing you with kindness almost as leverage. Yeah, yeah. Whereas he doesn't have that bone no. in his body, I don't think. So. No, no. It's just it radiates out of his corkscrew hair. <laughs> it does. <laughs> so I guess just to wind that up, it was kind of the end of a phase yeah. of the show yeah, and the start of a new phase now coalescing into one point <laughs> in time. And it felt good to actually be recording this and for that that'll be out yeah and ideally people will be hearing this before the end of march well, that is ideal yeah that would be good so we can move forward now and that kind of having a part one out and then actually saying we're going to do a part two but then it not coming for a while it makes you accountable too yeah you won't be able to do that in the future now that hashtag producer mel's on board that's i it. will not be letting that fly <laughs> that's good that's what you're here for i would hope so so on that note, hashtag producer Mel to ask a question, tag us on social media or yeah. just tell us what you think. Buymeacoffee.com slash Joshua C. Liston to support the show financially. Just a one-off coffee with three bucks. Yeah. Even a dollar makes a difference, but I think the minimum is $3, so that's a coffee. The dollar doesn't get me much coffee. But uh, an you instant know what? Coffee. I'll take anything. I'm up for anything that comes at me. <laughs> Righto. Yeah. Very good. Okay. And punchingsideways.com to press play. And it's still the easiest way to show someone the show if they don't know what a podcast is. Just say, listen, open your ears, sit down, you're in for a treat. Exactly. A coffee-flavoured treat. <laughs> That's the one. Okay. See ya. This episode was edited by Dead Set Podcasting. If you want your podcast to sound this good, check out deadsetpodcasting.com forward slash services. Get the sound you're chasing.